Welcome to the teaching and preaching ministry of Second Baptist Church, where we exist to delight in God, display His grace, and declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be reached at www.secondbaptist-mtv.com or by calling 618-244-1706. We trust you'll be encouraged and challenged by the message you're about to hear. you, if you would, to please open to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, we're looking at verses 10 to 14 this morning. Galatians chapter 3. And as we come to this particular passage this morning, interestingly, we come now to just about the halfway point of this letter, about the, the very center of this letter in terms of its location. But surprisingly, we also come this morning to really about the very center of Paul's message in this letter as well. In fact, this, this paragraph here, verses 10 to 14, is said by many to be one of the most important paragraphs in the letter of Galatians. John Stott He writes this, he says, these verses are fundamental to an understanding of biblical Christianity. Commentator Leon Morris writes this, he says, these verses concern the central issue, which is how to come into a right relationship with God. So that's what we find here in these verses. So needless to say, these are very important, these are very central verses in this letter, And yet at the same time, these verses also come with some difficulties as well. These aren't, church, an easy set of verses. Another commentator writes this, he says, These verses rank high on any list of the most complicated and controversial passages in Paul's writings. Now, let me say, that's not what you want to read when you sit down to sermon prep. In fact, Martin Luther, Luther himself, he said this, he says, Whoever can understand these verses and know well this art of distinguishing between law and gospel, give him a front row seat and call him a doctor of Scripture. So these aren't an easy set of verses, okay? But nevertheless, they're massively important. Why? Why? Well, I I think it's because there are at least two very important, very weighty truths that Paul wants us to see here, that he wants us to glean from these verses. The first is found there, notice, in verse 13. That Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Friends, that statement right there is perhaps one of the single most concise crucial statements anywhere in the Bible about the purpose and the meaning of the cross. This is what the cross is all about. In other words, Paul is going to explain for us here the meaning of the cross. You know, it's amazing how things have a way of working themselves out because I didn't, when I was mapping out this sermon series several months ago, 
in Galatians, but it's rather remarkable that in the providence of God, we would come to this particular text on this particular Sunday leading up to Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Because in in verse 13, Paul makes plain the reason behind the cross. This is why we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Paul is going to show us why Jesus had to die and what his death on the cross actually achieved. And so this morning, he wants us to glory in the cross. There's nothing more central than that. But there's a second reality here I think Paul wants us to feel the weight of this morning in this passage. And here it is. That it is quite possible, in fact, maybe even for some sitting in the room this morning, it is quite possible for those who attend church, who listen to sermons, who go to Bible studies, who are involved in a small group, who avoid all kinds of sin and try and perform all kinds of religious duties and activities, it's quite possible to do all of those things and yet still be cursed by God. To even claim the name of Jesus and yet be under a divine curse. That's heavy, isn't it? In fact, what Paul does here is he shows us a contrast between two groups of people. There's only two categories of people. So just, just notice them with me before we read the text. Look there, category number one. Look at verse 10. Group number one. It's those, Paul says, who rely, it's an important word, on works of the law. Those who rely on their own efforts in order to merit themselves a right standing with God. These are the self-reliant. These are the self-sufficient. These are the self-righteous. That's the first category. Look at the second though, verse 11, second group. It's those who live by faith. They don't trust in their own efforts. They don't trust in their own merits. They don't trust in their own goodness or their own righteousness. No, no, they come broken and empty and poor in spirit to God clinging only to his gracious promises, resting in the work of Christ. So get this, the first are doers, the second are believers. The first make works the way of salvation, the second it's faith. The first believes I must justify myself, and the second says, no, it's only God that justifies me, and all I can do is trust, all I can do is receive. Those are the only two groups. And here's what's shocking about this. Who is Paul talking to? He's talking to religious people. He's talking to churchgoers. So, Paul isn't contrasting religious and irreligious. He isn't contrasting churchgoers and non-churchgoers, no. Paul is contrasting between two different types of people that are even within the church. And yet one group is blessed and one group is cursed. That's heavy. In fact, both, as we'll see in this text, offer two different pathways to salvation, to eternal life, to blessing, but only one reaches that destination. These two paths lead in two totally different directions. Let's see. Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. Out of the honor of the reading of God's word, would you stand with me as we read this passage together? 
Beginning in verse 10, the Apostle Paul says this, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to our God. You can be seated. Well, just remember with me what Paul's doing here in chapter 3. You remember? He's giving arguments here why justification, right standing with God, comes only by faith. So he's defending here this doctrine of justification by faith alone. In contrast, remember to what was being taught by these Judaizers in Galatia who were saying that it wasn't by faith alone. No, it was by faith plus works of the law, namely circumcision and obedience to the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, that if you truly wanted to be and in a right relationship with God, if you wanted to be part of God's covenant people, if you wanted to be a true son of Abraham, then you had to be circumcised. You had to obey the law. In other words, you had to functionally become a Jew. And Paul blows that theology out of the water. In fact, chapter 2, verse 16, he says, no, no, justification before God isn't by works of the law, but by faith in Christ alone. And then in chapter 3, he gives arguments here for why it's only faith. Argument number one, we saw in verses 1 to 5, look there, he argues from the Galatians' own personal experience, how they received the Spirit. It wasn't by what they did, it was only by faith. And then last week, remember beginning in verse 6, argument number 2, Paul now argues here from the Old Testament Scriptures, showing them how these Judaizers had misread and misinterpreted really the, the entire Bible, showing them that salvation was never by law-keeping and that true children of Abraham, true sons of Abraham, are those who have the because Abraham himself was justified only by faith. Look at verse 6. Remember he quotes from Genesis 15. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's verses 6 to 9. So physical descent doesn't make you a child of Abraham. But only faith. Only faith. And so here now. Paul continues that same argument from the Old Testament. In fact, in verses 10 to 14 here, he quotes from the Old Testament again four times. Four times in just the span of five verses. Look there. Verse 10, verse 12, 
verse 13. From Deuteronomy, quoting from Habakkuk, quoting from Leviticus. So what's Paul doing? Here's what he's doing. He is grounding his argument, just like we saw last week. He's grounding it in the Old Testament Scriptures. And again, he is showing us here how to actually read and understand our Bible. How to put the whole story of the Bible together. And showing us how these Judaizers have gotten it all wrong. That righteousness can't come by the law, but only by faith in Christ alone. But this week, in verses 10 to 14, what Paul does now is he sets up a contrast. He sets up a contrast. Notice verses 6 to 9 and verses 10 to 14. And the reason we know that is because of, notice that word for at the beginning of verse 10. So he's connecting us back to verses 6 to 9. It's a contrast, but also that contrast, notice between the word blessed in verse 9 and cursed in verse 10. Notice the contrast. So then, really, Paul's argument, it goes something like this. Verse 9, those who rely on... So it follows then, verse 10, that those who rely on works are under... 6 to 9 are the positive example of relying on faith resulting in blessing, while verses 10 to 14 contrast that and are the negative example of relying on resulting in a curse. So in essence, here's now Paul's argument. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, Galatians, we are saved. We are justified only by faith. Why, Paul? Because any human attempt to earn right standing before God only results in a curse. Verses 10 to 12. But, verse 13, Christ alone can remove that curse. And thus, verse 14, faith in Him alone is the only pathway to blessing. That's Paul's argument. And so, beloved, I, I think there's a serious warning here for us because and that should right there cause us to pause and to even ask ourselves the question, okay, which pathway am I on? Blessing or cursing? But also I think Paul, he wants us, especially in light of this upcoming Easter weekend, he wants us to glory in the cross. So let's do that under two headings this morning. The first, I want you to see the reason for the cross, or the curse, excuse me, the reason for the curse, verses 10 to 12. We'll spend a bit of time here just to pick this apart and understand what he's doing here. The reason for the curse. And then second, the redemption of the cross, verses 13 and 14. So first, <clears throat> notice with me the reason for the curse. So what Paul does here now in verses 10 to 12 is he now turns the tables on them. So he's just argued positively for justification by faith alone in verses 6 to 9, but now he begins to argue negatively against justification by works. So he's showing us here 
the impossibility of being justified by the law. Why it's impossible for anyone to be justified by law. And why, if you try, friend, to earn a right standing with God through law-keeping, it's only going to result in you being cursed. And Paul does that by giving three arguments, three reasons that are grounded and backed up by the Old Testament. So let's look at each of those three arguments now. Argument number one. Argument number one. Look at verse 10. Here it is. Here's the argument. It's that those who rely on the law for justification are cursed because the law demands perfect obedience. The law demands perfect obedience. Look at verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now immediately, when I read verse 10, a few questions come to my mind. Do they come to your mind? First, what are works of the law? What are these works of the law? Well, that phrase, works of the law, is really Paul's way of saying any human attempt to earn God's favor. In fact, it's really his way of saying legalism. You realize there's no Greek word for legalism? So Paul uses that phrase. When he uses that phrase, works of the law, here, he is describing legalism. He's describing human attempts to earn favor, right standing with God. And he always uses that phrase negatively, works of the law. In fact, we've already seen it, haven't we? In contrast with even the hearing with faith, look back at verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Or even back in our thesis verse, right, of this letter, chapter 2, verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So in verse 10 then, Paul says that these are those who, notice verse 10, rely on, they trust in, they depend upon works of the law. So relying on works of the law then is attempting to earn one's righteousness by doing what the law demands. It's by seeking to gain a right standing with God through law keeping. It's justification by doing. So this is not, let's be clear, spirit-empowered good works. This is not spirit-empowered obedience. This is an obedience that God empowers by relying upon his spirit, as we saw back, notice in verse 5, that he does so by the hearing with faith. No, this is self-reliant attempts to earn God's favor by what I do. Legalism. But notice, notice what Paul says, this reliance upon works of the law earns me. Verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Why is legalism so deadly, Paul? Because any reliance upon what I do 
earns me a divine curse. That's heavy. If you seek justification by your own efforts, Paul says, you're damned. You're cursed. You are separated from God. You are you're cut off from God. Genesis 3, right? The curse. You are damned. Why? Look at verse 10. Paul tells us why. Here's the reason. And he does so by quoting here from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. But notice, notice that this curse that Paul pronounces here in verse 10 It isn't upon those who don't keep the law. Who's it for? It's for those who try to keep it, but don't keep it all. Do you see the difference? Look at verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Why, Paul? For it is written, quoting Deuteronomy 27, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. This curse is pronounced on whom? Those who try to keep it and fail to keep it. The curse here is upon those who don't keep it all perfectly. Why? Because the law demands perfect obedience. In fact, the context here of Deuteronomy 27 shows that to be true. If you remember, this quote here that Paul uses, it comes at the end of a very interesting chapter in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 27, where Moses has just finished giving instructions to the nation of Israel about what they are supposed to do after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness when they cross over the Jordan into the promised land. And here's what Moses says. He says, okay, when you get across the river, here's what you do. Half the tribes of Israel are to stand on Mount Gerizim. The other half of the tribes are to stand on Mount Ebal opposite. And the Levites are to stand in the middle and they are to shout out this series of curses which they do, verses 15 to 26 of Deuteronomy 27, to which the people were to shout out, Amen. So be it. So for example, Deuteronomy 27, 15, Cursed is the idolater. Amen. Verse 16, Cursed is everyone, anyone who dishonors father or mother. Amen. Verse 19, cursed is anyone who perverts justice. Amen. And so on, and so on, and so on. And then, in Deuteronomy 28, there is a series of blessings for all those, in verse 1, who faithfully obey the voice of the Lord, being careful, it says, to do all His commandments. So, perfect obedience all the time, and if not, cursed. And that's Paul's first argument here for why we can't be justified by the law. Because if you try to earn a right standing with God through law keeping, you've got to keep it all. Perfect obedience all of the time. So what's the problem? Well, the problem isn't the law. 
You know, the problem, what's the problem? The problem is us. The problem is, is sin. And therefore, the law can't bless us. No, all the law can do is curse us. Why? Here's why. Because we don't have the power. We don't have the ability because of sin to keep the law perfectly. John Calvin, he says it like this in his commentary on Galatians. Listen to what he says. He says, Paul concludes boldly that all are cursed because all have been commanded to keep the law perfectly. And this is because, listen to this phrase, in the present corruption of our nature, the ability is wanting. The blessing which it offers us, meaning the blessing the law offers us, is excluded by our depravity, so only the curse remains. You see what, Paul's, or what, what Calvin's saying? In other words, the problem, friend, is our total depravity. The problem, then, is the universality of sin. The problem here is that the law commands us to do things that we can't do. The law commands us to do things that are contrary to our sinful desires and our sinful nature. And so the problem is that no one, because of sin, can keep the law perfectly. That's Paul's first argument. That those who don't do everything the law requires are cursed. No one does everything the law requires because of sin, and therefore... If you rely on works of the law, you're cursed. Now, before we move to the second argument he gives here, I think it's important to ask this question that needs to be answered, and maybe you've asked it already. Is that what Deuteronomy teaches? Does Deuteronomy, does Deuteronomy teach and command obedience, but it's not possible? Right? Right? Does the Old Testament command perfect obedience knowing it's impossible to do so? And the answer to that question is yes. Maybe you need to see it. Look at Deuteronomy 29. After the blessings and the cursings in verse 4. So after what just happened, Deuteronomy 29, Moses says this in verse 4. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Deuteronomy 29.4. The problem, Moses says, is with their hearts. That's why they can't keep it. Then one chapter later, Deuteronomy 30, Moses says, though, there is a day coming. This is the new covenant. There's a day coming, verse 6, when the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. In other words, both Paul and Moses agree that without a new heart, without divine enablement, without faith, which is what the Spirit gives, all the works of the law then are simply legalistic strivings of the flesh and those strivings are only in vain because no one can do all the law requires. So what's the purpose of the law? Well, we're going to see it again next week, but here's the purpose of the law. is to show us we're incapable of keeping it. It's to show us our desperate need. It's to show us that we can't save ourselves and that if we're going to be righteous 
before God, it can't come by our own doing. No, it has to come by God's doing. Which leads to Paul's second argument, argument number two. It's that those who rely on the law for justification are cursed because the Old Testament everywhere teaches justification by faith alone. Everywhere. Look at verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Justified how? By the law? No. By faith. So here's now Paul's second argument for why you can't be justified by the law. Because, verse 11, the Old Testament everywhere teaches right standing with God comes only by faith. And the reason I say everywhere, everywhere, it teaches it everywhere, is because we saw it last week, didn't we? The example of Abraham. Look at verse 6, quotes Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him. It was credited to him as righteousness. So Abraham was justified by God before he ever obeyed God. How? By faith. So Paul shows us from the law that it's only by faith. Genesis 15. But now, he quotes from the prophets. In fact, he quotes from the prophet Habakkuk. Verse 11. Look there, Habakkuk 2.4. So get this. The law and the prophets teach what? Justification by faith alone. Look at verse 11. Now it is evident. Meaning, Galatians, you know this. This is absolutely plain. This is clear as day. If you were reading the Old Testament rightly, you would see this everywhere in the pages of Scripture. And he supports this by quoting, look, Habakkuk 2, 4, in order to prove that the Old Testament shows us that the only way of salvation is by faith alone. Look at verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. The Old Testament, he says, never taught justification by works. For, because, Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous shall live by faith. And I, I, I take that righteousness there in a, in a legal sense, in a forensic sense. What I mean is, you, you really could, I think, translate this, verse 11, like this. The one regarded by God as righteous will live by faith. Now it's clear that Habakkuk 2.4 was important to Paul in his own understanding of justification. Because he quotes it here, but he also quotes it in Romans 1.17 when he's defending the gospel. It's a very important verse to Paul, but this verse was also very important to the Protestant Reformation. In fact, it was very important to Luther's own understanding of the doctrine of justification as well. Philip Ryken, he recounts this story from Luther's life. Listen to what he says. He says, this verse from Habakkuk had a tremendous influence on Luther. Luther encountered it in a monastery as a monk, although at first he was uncertain what it meant. 
Later, he went through a dark period of illness and depression during which he imagined that he was under the wrath of God, lying on a bed in Italy and fearing that he was soon to die. Luther found himself repeating the words over and over again, the righteous will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. Not long after he recovered, Luther went on to Rome where he visited the church of St. John of Lateran. Maybe you remember this from the scene in the movie Luther. Where the Pope had promised an indulgence for giving the sins of any pilgrim who mounted its staircase, which was said to be from the judgment hall of Pontius Pilate, stained with the blood of Christ. And mounting the stairs on their knees, pausing frequently to pray and kiss each step. The story continues. As Luther repeated his prayers on that staircase, the words of the prophet Habakkuk suddenly came to his mind. The just shall live by faith. Thereupon he ceased his prayers, returned to Wittenberg, and took this as the chief foundation of all his doctrine. In fact, later, Luther himself said this. He says, before those words, Habakkuk 2.4, broke upon my mind, I hated God and I was angry with him. But when by the Spirit of God I understood those words, that the just shall live by faith, then I felt born again like a new man. I entered through the open doors into the very paradise of God. You see, church, Luther, he understood that in that moment, works cannot justify me. No, only by faith are we declared righteous by God. And listen, I realize that I am saying that to a room full of Protestant evangelical Christians, okay? Pastor, we know this. We, we, we understand this. But the reality is, is that we actually prove we don't really believe that all the time, do we? Do we really believe in our heart of hearts consistently this doctrine? For example, when you break that streak of consecutive quiet times, or that streak of saying no to that certain temptation or besetting sin. And you think, doggone it, it's going to be another six months before I can get that streak back and God will be pleased with me. Church, do we really believe that we are fully, finally justified forever? You see, so often what we want to do is we want to mix faith and works, don't we? Some of Jesus, some of me, as if we, we need Jesus really only because he helps me to better obey the rules so then God will be pleased with me. And Paul says, no, the righteous live only by faith. Faith isn't simply a supplement to good behavior. That's what the Judaizers were teaching. They were teaching, yeah, you need Jesus, but you also need the law. And, and, and Paul says, no, faith is not doing. Faith is receiving what comes down as a gift from heaven. We don't earn God's favor. God is not smiling on you, Christian, in proportion to what you do. No, he is smiling upon you in accordance with what has been done for you only by grace. 
by coming to him simply with the empty hands of faith and saying, Lord, I've got nothing. I have nothing to bring. And the only way I'm going to be saved is if you do it, because verse 11, the righteous will live only by faith. It isn't some mixture of faith and works. No, it's only faith. In fact, that leads to Paul's third argument here. Argument number three, look there. That those who rely on the law are are cursed because because salvation salvation by works and salvation by faith are mutually exclusive. In other words, it's one or the other. It can't be both. It's either all faith or it's all works. Look at verse 12. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Now, at first, let's admit that verse 11 and verse 12 seem contradictory. Don't they? Why? Well, because in verse 11, the righteous shall live by faith. But in verse 12, the one who does them, meaning the commandments of the law, shall live by them. Same word. Live. Right? They seem contradictory, don't they? They both promise Life. So which is it? And beloved, I think that's Paul's point. It's either one or the other. It's either by works of the law or it's by faith. Faith excludes the law. Law excludes faith. It can't be both ways. Verse 12, what does Paul mean? when he says the law is not of faith. New Testament commentator Tom Schreiner comments, this is one of the most difficult verses to interpret in all of Paul's writings. Good luck. That's what he should have said in the commentary. Because, here's why, how you interpret this verse reflects how you understand all of Paul's theology related to the law and grace, or the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. It's it's that important. So what is he saying? Let me attempt. Verse 12. When Paul says law here, I think he still has in mind works of the law. Verse 10. So law here is just shorthand for works of the law, which, remember, is just shorthand for legalism. So you could say, verse 12, the works of the law, meaning legalistic attempts to earn God's favor, is not of faith. In other words, he's contrasting works of the law, legalism, and faith, and he's saying they are mutually exclusive paths. Then in verse 12, look there, he quotes again from the Old Testament to support this, Leviticus 18.5. The one who does them, the commandments of God, shall live by them. Now, why does he quote this verse? Because if you go back and you read Leviticus 18, 5, it seems that Moses is talking about life, live by them. He's talking about it in terms of the living in the land, like health and fruitful crops and safety and security from 
the enemies of Israel. So then either Moses taught salvation by the law as possible, or Paul is taking Moses out of context. So what is he doing here? Why does he quote Leviticus 18.5? And for the sake of time, I'm just going to give you the interpretation I lean toward. There's many. I mean, books have been written on this, okay? Whole books on this one verse. In essence, here's the argument, I think. What the Judaizers have done, Paul says, is they have turned back the clock. No one likes turning back the clock, do they? If you elect me president, that would be the first executive order. We would get rid of daylight savings time, okay? Nobody likes turning back the clock. That's exactly what the Judaizers are doing here, Paul says. They're turning back the clock. They're turning back the clock on salvation history. Here's what I mean. We'll see it next week. But Paul is going to show us that now that Christ has come, the entire Mosaic law has come to an end. It's over. Look at chapter 3. Just skip ahead, verse 23. Chapter 3, 23, he says, Now before faith came, you could say before Christ came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith should be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, or Christ has come, we are no longer under a guardian. You're no longer under the Mosaic law. And what the Judaizers were doing here is they were trying to go back to the law. They were trying to go back, turn it back to the Mosaic law. Christ had come and thus he'd put an end to the law. And not only had he put an end to circumcision, but he had put an end to the entire sacrificial system as well that covered their sins because they couldn't keep the law in the Old Testament. And Paul says, okay, Galatians, listen, if you do this, if you go back to the law, if you rewind the clock, then there no longer remains any sacrifice for sin. Hebrews 10, verse 26, you've turned your back on Jesus and thus now you must keep all the law perfectly. If you try to live by the law, then you've got to do all that the law requires in order to live. Because Leviticus 18.5, the one who does them will live by them. In other words, Paul is saying here, works of the law and faith, they aren't two parallel tracks that run in the same direction. That's often what we think. Like, I just, I need a right amount of faith and a right amount of works, and it's just running side by side here. And Paul says, no, law and faith, they are, they are actually two totally different directions. They're going two different roads here. There's no mingling. It's one or the other. One leads to eternal life. One leads to eternal damnation. One leads to a curse, one leads to a blessing. And if you get this wrong, not only do you get the gospel wrong, but you go to hell. Cursed. 
And Paul will not compromise. No one is justified by the law. So whether it be from Deuteronomy, whether it be from Habakkuk, whether it be from Leviticus, I mean, the message is the same. The law demands perfection, no exceptions, no failures at all, because to break it in one place is to break all of it. James 2, verse 10, whoever keeps the law but fails at one point is guilty of it all. There is none righteous, and therefore righteousness can't come through the law. Now that... That's, that's pretty bleak, isn't it? Why? Because we're left incapable. There's nothing we can do. We can't save ourselves. And, and it removes all pride. It removes all boasting. It removes all self-reliance. No, we must fully rely on God. That's what faith is. And that's where he turns now. In verse 13 and 14. Look there with me. Number two. The redemption of the cross. Verses 13 and 14. So, so, so Paul shows us then in, in verses 10 to 12. Man's condition under the law is hopeless. It, it's a grim picture of the human predicament, isn't it? Cursed. That's, friend, that's all of us. We're all under this crushing weight of God's law, rendered guilty before God, justly deserving his righteous punishment. And so our only hope is that someone, someone outside of us would rescue us. Our only hope is that someone might pay the debt that we owed, might pay the price for us. And that's where Paul turns in verse 13. Look there. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So I told you, this is one of the most clear, concise statements in the Bible about the meaning of the cross. This is the very heart of the Christian gospel. This is what Good Friday is about. It's what Easter Sunday is all about. So just glory in the cross with me for a moment, would you? Verse 13, look there. He redeemed us. This is the first time now Paul uses that term in Galatians. It won't be his last. Christ redeemed us. Just notice how definitive that statement is. Notice how final that statement is. He redeemed us. Not that he tried to redeem us. Not that he made it possible for us to be redeemed and then we just do the rest. No, he accomplished our redemption. His work was effective. It was a definite atonement. It was a total rescue. He redeemed us. Verse 13, that word redeem, it's a marketplace word. It means to buy off. It means to pay the price. It's very often used to refer to the purchase of a slave in order to set that slave free. And and when that happened, the slave was redeemed. The slave was set free. Set free from what? What have they been redeemed from? Look there, verse 13. Christ 
redeemed us from the curse of the law. There it is. He redeemed us from the curse of the law. He, he took away, Paul says, the curse of the law. The curse that you and I had earned, that we were under because we had violated God's law, because we had broken God's law, we were cursed. We were under the curse of the law, Paul says. And Christ, he redeemed us from that curse. He paid the price that this curse demanded. How so? How did he do it? Look at verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Penal substitutionary atonement. This is substitution language. Christ became a curse for us in order to pay the ransom price. Jesus had to endure God's curse. Friends, that's what the gospel is. You see, you and I, we're under a curse. Because none of us have kept the law perfectly, and, and that's the stipulation, that's the condition for a relationship with God. And so we're cut off from God, we're, we're cursed, it's all hopeless, right? Unless, unless God transfers that curse to another. Unless someone else bears that curse. And beloved, that is exactly what Jesus did. He was the only one who wasn't under the curse. Who had never sinned. Never broken God's law. And therefore, he was the only one capable of bearing our curse because he had no curse of his own to bear. And notice in verse 13... It doesn't say he was cursed. What does it say? He became a curse. That when the law exacted from Jesus the penalty of sin on the cross, it did so justly because at that very moment he became sin. He became a curse. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin. Jesus, the sinless one, became sin so that he might bear the curse of sin. This is why Paul quotes again, notice Deuteronomy 21.23 and verse 13. Look what he says there. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. In ancient Israel, when a convicted criminal was executed, not necessarily by crucifixion, that was a Roman practice, but whenever they were executed, their bodies were then hung on a tree, hung on a stake. Why? As an indication for all to see that they had been justly condemned as a transgressor of the law. But it wasn't the hanging there that made them cursed. No, the hanging there was simply the outward sign they were cursed. They were cursed by the law. And, and, and that's what Paul says here about Jesus. So think about this. Think about this. 
Paul takes this verse from Deuteronomy and he relates it to Christ. He relates it to Jesus' own crucifixion, meaning that the death of Jesus on the cross, it wasn't just an accident. It wasn't just a mere coincidence. No, as, as Timothy George says, he says, there was always a cross in the heart of God from all eternity. This was the fulfillment of God's deliberate plan. And notice why he did it. Look at verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Why did he do it? He was willingly cursed for us. For us, he suffered. For us, he shed his blood. For us, he became the object of God's wrath and endured the judgment of God. For you, Christian. Luther says it like this. He says the whole emphasis is on the phrase for us. He, Jesus, is not acting in his own person now. He is not the Son of God born of the Virgin. Ponder that for a moment. But he is a sinner who has and bears the sin of Paul, the former blasphemer and persecutor, of Peter, who denied Christ, of David, who was an adulterer and a murderer, of you and me. In short, he has and bears all the sins of all men in his body. Not in the sense that he committed them, but in the sense that he has taken them, committed by us upon his own body, in order to make satisfaction for them by his own blood. And friend, do you know what this curse was? It was being separated. It was being cut off, abandoned by his father. Hell opened up and swallowed him in that moment. You see, the curse that Jesus endured, you and I have never experienced. We've never experienced it because none of us have ever known anything like the perfect relationship between the Father and the Son. In fact, I think, I think if we were to hear verse 13 from Jesus' own lips this morning, it would sound something like this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which means that if he was treated as we deserve, then Luther calls this the happy exchange. We by faith are treated as he deserves. The one who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That, this is why we're, we're saved and justified only by faith because he alone can remove the curse and grant us righteousness before God, which means, beloved, that if all your sin was emptied on Jesus and he bore the curse in your place, and if we have Jesus' own righteousness now by faith 
then not only do we receive full and total forgiveness, but all we will ever receive is love and acceptance and blessing. And it means that if our sin is no longer our own, if it was all placed on Jesus, then why do you continue to hold on to it? Have you placed your sins on Jesus? Because if so, it's swallowed up in death. It's gone. Every ounce of the wrath of God against that sin has been satisfied in the body of Jesus on the cross. That's what it means to be redeemed. And notice now, as the result of that, as we close, just look there at verse 14, we'll end here. Paul gives two result clauses here, but really, they're the same thing. They just elaborate each other. Look at verse 14. So that, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So as Paul concludes here now, we see why it is that faith in Christ alone is the only pathway to blessing. Because it is only through Christ that we receive this blessing of Abraham and escape the curse of God. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come. So the only way to receive the blessing of Abraham is being in Christ by faith. And verse 14, notice who this blessing is for. Look who it's for. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we, Jews, might receive this blessing. Gentiles and Jews. That word Gentiles there, it's the word from which we get the word ethnicities, ethnos, that in Christ God has purchased a redeemed people from all ethnicities, salvation for the whole world. That all nations might experience the blessing of Abraham. And look at this blessing, verse 14. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Meaning, in the coming and the living and the dying and the rising of Jesus, God has now poured out his spirit on all flesh. These are the last days now, Jew and Gentile. God is with us. He is in us. He's strengthening us. He's empowering us. He's for us. He's not against us. And we not only have the forgiveness of sins, Paul says, but we also have now the indwelling presence of God with us. In fact, beloved, the best thing that God could give you is himself. So, if you ever wonder how God feels about your sin, Christian, look no further than the cross. But in the same way, if you ask the question, does God love me? then look no further than the cross. Let's pray. Lord, we just want to glory in the cross this morning. Thank you for our Redeemer, our Savior, the one who bore the curse in our place. May he receive all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.
Take a brief, brief five-minute break here in a moment. Members, stick around, but receive this benediction as you leave, this blessing from Moses, which is yours, Christian, through, through Christ. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. You're dismissed. trust you were encouraged by the message you heard. For more information about our church, visit us online at www.secondbaptist-mtv.com or call us at 618-244-1706. And thank you for listening.